0: And uh, now that we've had the Greek lesson, let's talk about this passage a little bit. The passage is more than just the first verse of John 1. Of course, it's John 1 to 14. Uh, There's so much in those 14 verses that I just can't cover it all. So I'm going to to choose a selection of verses and talk on four themes. And uh, let's review those themes if uh, my wife has everything ready here. I think she does. What's that? Uh oh, something went away? All right. Technical difficulties. Well, I, I can talk about, okay, four points or four themes. The first is the meaning of the word logos, meaning of the word for God. Second, the relationship and identity of the Word with God. The relationship and identity of the Word with God. Third, the life and light of the Word as God. And fourth, the incarnation of the Word from God. All right, let's look at each one uh, separately. Let's look at the first one. The meaning of the Word for God. Now, the word logos, we all know the Greek word for word, logos, has many meanings in the Greek. Uh, more meanings than what our word word means in English. If you look at basic Greek grammar, you'll see that it, first of all, of course, can mean a single word. It can mean a statement, a report, a story, a message, a speech, uh, a study, an account, a reason, a reckoning. It means a lot of things. I remember when I was in college down south many years ago. Oh, many years ago. Um, I used to visit different churches and that's what I recommend. Any you college students, when you go away to college, you know, visit different churches and get to see what different how different churches worship and so forth. So I was at this country church and the and the pastor during the service uh, looked at one of the deacons and said, Brother so-and-so, get up and give us a word. And <clears throat> the guy got up and gave a ten-minute speech. And I thought to myself, he just wanted a word, for goodness sake. But <laughs> That is a legitimate use of the term word in Greek, at least I don't know whether the deacon knew that or not to defend it, but I mean, I could call on one of the elders now to get up and give a word and they might go on for 10 or 15 minutes, but I'm not going to because I'm afraid they'll take me up on it. <laughs> but at any rate, the, the Greek word has many meanings. Um, and then in Greek philosophy, it takes on an even uh, bigger meaning. The, the philosophers in, in ancient Greece talked about the logos as the principle of rationality in the universe, that which gives order and meaning to the universe. The Stoics talked about the eternal reason, the, kind of, the idea that there's a universal mind that eternally gives meaning and rationality to the universe. And then there's the, the biblical meaning of word in the Bible, Word often means revelation, a message from God, God's self-communication. In the Old Testament, it's very common to hear the phrase, the word of the Lord came to the prophet saying, God's self-communication to the prophet. It sometimes can mean God's creative self-expression that causes things to come to be. For example, in Psalm 33, verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Uh, It refers back to Genesis 1 where God spoke and things came into existence. So God's word is that power of his speech that causes things to be. All right? Now, John's readers would pick up on a number of these connotations as they read John's book. But you know what? John goes beyond all of them. (laughs) in what he means by logos. Now, he would agree with the Greek readers that logos is the, um, the reason the world is rational, the principle of rationality. But he would go beyond that and say the logos is not just the reason or the rationality of the universe, he's the creator of the universe. He's the one who brought all these things into existence, not just their rational order. He would agree with the Greek readers That the word is revelation from God, revealed message from God, or God's self-expression, his power of word to cause things to be. But again, he goes beyond that. It's more than just the words of God or the power of God's speech. It's a person. The word is a person. As a matter of fact, it's the personal reality of God himself. And so that takes us on to the second theme. And that is the relationship and identity of the Word with God. Now, we looked at this verse here, the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was pros theon. The Word was with God. And that, of course, suggests relationship. The Word was with God, suggests relationship. But. Relationship also suggests distinction. There are two that are related to each other, all right? So that you have relationship and and distinction there. And yet, in that next little statement, the word was God. And there you have identity. Isn't that interesting? There is relationship and distinction between the two, but then there is identity. Now, how do we understand this? In one brief statement, John speaks as though there are two distinct beings in relationship, and in the very next statement, he says they're one and the same. So we see this mysterious teaching in the Bible about both the relationship and the identity of the Word with God. How can we understand that? I mean, we we don't have any earthly analogies that quite uh, fit. I mean... We, any two people, any two human beings who are in a relationship are certainly not identical. Now Barbara, my wife and I have a great relationship, but we are far from being identical, believe me. <clears throat> I, what's the old saying? Opposites attract. That certainly was true in this case. That's what makes it so much fun living with her. <laughs> but, but even identical twins aren't perfectly identical and yet the word and god are somehow one now as we proceed through the gospel of john we find that the logos the word is just another name for the son of god and jesus christ then who was the incarnate son of god spoke of an intimate relationship that he had with the father so there was relationship there but there was distinction there's jesus and there's god the father and yet, in John 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Identity. The mystery of the distinction and identity between the Word and God. Now, John is not the only one who teaches this distinction identity business. Uh, the Apostle Paul, for example, in um, Titus uh, 2.13 Paul, he speaks of the glorious appearing that, that we wait for. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is when he appears, he's not just only going to be our Savior, but he's spoken of as our great God and Savior identity. You see, yet in passages like Romans eight three and Galatians four four, Paul speaks of God. Sending his son. Distinction. Isn't that interesting? We have the same thing, not only with the son and the father, we have the same thing with the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians uh, 2.11, Paul says, no one knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit within man. So, so no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Identity. And yet in the very next verse, he says, we have received the Spirit who is from God. Distinction. In, uh, in verses like uh, Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus tells us to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That seems to suggest distinction of all three. And yet throughout the New Testament, whenever the true God is spoken of, it's always in the Singular. I mean, the New Testament was, is just as emphatic as the Old Testament. There's only one God. Um, Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.17 Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. So ever since the New Testament was written, the church has wrestled with this biblical teaching about the distinction, yet the identity, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the church came up with what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, ever since uh, the fifth and sixth centuries, the, the common church creeds have talked about it, and in this language, of three persons, one essence, or one divine being. Now. These words, persons, essence, being, I mean, we we can understand them maybe on our finite human level. But what God is really like in his ultimate, infinite, divine life is far beyond our understanding. It, it's it's incompre, incomprehensible. It's inconceivable. So the Trinity remains a mystery to us. However... Even though we can't comprehend God as Trinity, we can apprehend something of what it means. Um, John, in another one of his books, John, first epistle of John, 1 John 4, 8, says God is love. You see, God is, is the eternal perfection of love, the fullness of love. Now... If, if there's only one solitary person, the lonely lover, it seems that love is not complete. So if God is only one person without any relationship, it seems that God would have to create the world in order to have something to love and to have love given back to him. But it's interesting that the Bible doesn't teach that God needed the world. The Bible, I think, teaches that God is complete in himself. He's perfect from all eternity. He's independent. He's self-sufficient in His being. So when Jesus came along and it was time for God to reveal more of the mystery of His being, we have come to understand through Jesus that God is not a lonely person seeking something to love, but God is perfect in love from all eternity, complete in love as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, so this is the point, I think, of, of uh, John one one In the beginning, before the Word created anything, there was the Word with God and the Word was God. Relationship and identity. And we must insist, then, on monotheism. I mean, there can only be one infinite, eternal God, creator of all things. And... Uh, Yet the Bible tells us that this one God was in perfect loving relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity. So remember Trinity, always think of the threeness there, but remember Trinity is a contraction of triunity, three-oneness, okay? So you need to emphasize the oneness and the threeness equally. Now my wife has a special thing here. Ooh, there it is. Oh, she wants to back up. This was her idea. To, to uh, She thought that we needed to spice up the message a little bit, so we have some pictures here. Um, as, as some of you know, I'm a tree lover, and one of my favorite trees is in Turkey Mountain Park up in Yorktown. And I call this tree Trinity Tulip Tree. It's a 120-foot tulip tree that has three trunks, and uh, they all grow together they're all of equal size and they grow up into equal crowns so that you could take each one and it would look like a tree a single tree but if you look at the base of it the next picture it all looks like one base one root system one trunk so the question is is it three trees or one tree And uh, that's not a perfect analogy. Nothing on earth is a perfect analogy of Trinity, but my wife thought we should throw it in there just to uh, give it a try. (laughs) Okay, let's go on to the third theme. The third theme that I want to look at is the life and light of the word as God. Now in verse 4, John goes on to say, in him was life, and that was the light. And that life was the light of men. Now, the Old Testament taught that God was a source of light. God was life in the fullest sense, and he was the, the source of, the creator of all life in our finite world. But notice John says that in the Word was life. You see how John gives various ways of identifying the Word with God. In the Old Testament, God is the creator of all things. But John says, the Word created all things. In the Old Testament, God is the life and the source of life. But John says, the Word is life and the source of life. Isn't that interesting? Uh, The New Testament commonly does this, incidentally. Everything that the Old Testament attributed to God, the New Testament attributes to Jesus the Son. As God. So we see how the New Testament identifies Christ with God. Now, the word life is an important word in the the Gospel of John, as we will see as we go throughout this series that we're beginning on John. Um, And John uh, plays special attention to a, a special kind of life that he calls eternal life, which the Word came to give us. But here in the beginning of his gospel, John seems to be referring to life in the most general sense because he says that this life was the light of men, that is, the light of all human beings. In verse 9, he refers to the true light that gives light to every man. That the logos, the word, was the life of every man and the light of every man, that is, of every human being. Now, what is this light that the word gives to every, everybody? The word light has a lot of meanings in the Bible, too, doesn't it? It, it can be natural light. It can be you know, physical light, like the light of stars and sun. Uh, back in Genesis 1, again, God refers to those lights that, that he created. Or it could be light in the sense of the truth of revelation. Um, Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word is light, the light of truth. Or it could mean light in the moral sense. It could mean light in the sense of moral character and good deeds. Remember in Matthew 5:16, Jesus tells us to let our light shine before others so that God may be glorified. To let what we do and what we are shine before others so that God will be glorified. <clears throat> and of course, it, it's, it's common, isn't it, for Christians to uh, want to let their light shine before others so that they will be glorified. <laughs> All right? Uh, no, Jesus wants us to, to let our, our character and our behavior be shown for the purpose that people will, be see, will see God's character through us. That our lives will be a reflection of Him. Because God, of course, is perfect light. He is perfect truth. He is perfect goodness. And we're to walk in that light, it says in 1 John 1. And also, uh, light can be seen as, in the sense of salvation, where where, uh, in Colossians uh, 1.12, by salvation we enter into the kingdom of Christ's kingdom of light. However, in these early verses, John's Gospel, the terms are used in a very general sense. So just as the Word is a source of life for every human being, whether Christian or non-Christian, so the Word is also the source of light in the sense of truth and goodness and morality in every human being, whether Christian or non-Christian. That seems to be what John is saying here. Before the Incarnation, He was the light, and the truth to every individual. Commenting on the use of light in John 1, the Zonovan Bible Encyclopedia says, this makes a statement, Christ the Logos, the preexistent Son of God, is the source of all mankind's illumination, moral, intellectual, and spiritual. Interesting statement. So the Logos is the light of every human being, This fascinating idea that whatever light of truth or goodness, whatever measure of truth or goodness you see in a human being, whoever they are, the Logos is the source of that. But then John contrasts this light with darkness in verse 5 and says, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. You see, as pure and as perfect as the light of the Logos is, We as humans in our sin distort it or reject it and we choose darkness. And so John goes on to explain that the word came to us in another way, in a very special way. The the logos who was the logos of creation, as Carl Henry used to say, became the logos of redemption. So the light that all of us have through the creation, Came to us in a special way with brilliant light in the sense of redemption. And that brings us into the fourth and final theme the incarnation of the Word from God. We earlier talked about the mystery of the Trinity, but here in verse 14, we confront another great mystery. Notice what John says in verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, monogenes, wish I had time to talk about that word, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the statement, the Word became flesh, means that the Word took on human nature and became a human being. And in verse 17, John finally tells us, who this person is who who came to us as one of us when he says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So if you link verse 14 up with verse 17, you see then when the Word became flesh, the eternal Word who was with God and was God became flesh who was now the person of Jesus Christ. So now we have another identity. (laughs) The identity of the eternal Word with the man, Jesus Christ. Now, it's not that Christ's manhood is divine, but rather the person called the Word, who was with God and was God in the beginning, is now the same person as Jesus Christ who dwells among us as a human being. That's the way the church has understood it, that that when God became flesh, He took on our human nature while maintaining His divine nature. So in the incarnation, we have a complex person. We have one person with two natures. And the divine nature adheres in the one person, and the human nature adheres in the one person. So that you can talk about Christ's divine attributes and His human attributes. Now I submit to you folks... that this is either the greatest miracle that has ever happened in the history of the universe. Even if you believe that the universe has been here for 14 billion years, I doubt any miracle like this has ever happened before. I mean, I suppose it's possible to imagine one of the Greek gods, these Greek gods who are finite and limited and... You know, had all sorts of moral problems and so forth but they had supernatural powers apparently <clears throat> I guess it's possible to imagine one of them could somehow turn themselves into a human being or come and dwell in a human being but if the true God is an in, one infinite eternal God before all things and above all things how in the world could that God become one of us on our little finite temporal level with all the qualities and limitations of humanity, starting as we all do as a zygote, and then an embryo, and then a newborn baby, and then grow through all the stages up to adulthood, to be fully one with us, and yet at the same time, the same person who is the eternal Logos, the eternal Son of God. How in the world could that happen? It is, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's inconceivable. It's unimaginable. And so all non Christians consider it absurd. And those of Judaism especially consider it blasphemous. But we Christians humbly bow before our infinite Creator and we seek to be open to all the omnipotent ways that God might relate to us on our level. And the incarnation was God's most special way. Now, even though we can't understand how God did it when he became man, we can understand something of why he became man. Let's let's just consider that question. Why did God, in the person of his son, become one of us. (laughs) We need it. (laughs) I preached one time at an African-American church up in Bridgeport. And boy, oh boy, it it really, you know, I kept getting the feedback, you know, with (laughs) amens and and everything. So I really appreciate Liz back then. The answer in the immediate context is verse 12. That is, so that we could become children of God. Look at verse 11. He came to that which is own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, verse 12, to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, okay, that's a a simple answer, but still the question is why? Why the incarnation in order for us to become children of God? I mean, wasn't Abraham a child of God? Abraham believed God and God accepted him. Wasn't he a child of God? Wasn't David a child of God? Weren't all the true believers of the Old Testament children of God through God's covenant promise? Well, yes, they were, I would say, retroactively. That is, retroactive to God's long-range plan to be fulfilled in Christ. Well, okay, but that's not much of an answer either, is it? <laughs> why the incarnation in order to make us children of God? Well, the fuller answer, of course, is throughout the whole book of John, which we're going to have a series on. The fullest answer is throughout the whole New Testament. <clears throat> but in finishing up this message, let me shortcut the answer by giving you Deal's version as to why, Okay. Now, there are are several reasons we could talk about from the Bible as to why God became man. I'll just give you one, but I think it's a big one, all right? Let me put it to you this way. You see, God had a problem. Well, God didn't really have a problem, I don't think, but from our standpoint, it seemed that God had a problem. And God's problem was how to harmonize his two primary moral attributes. God's two primor- primary moral attributes are his love and his justice or his righteousness. And how is God to satisfy both his justice and his love? How to bring them together into unity? Because you see, God, according to his justice, made a world that reflects his justice. That's why there's order in our world because the world is run by a system of laws. It's very orderly. And if you obey those laws, there are good consequences. And if you disobey those laws, there are some unfortunate consequences, all right? We learn through the orderly lawful creation how to behave. And so if you disobey the law of gravity and jump out of a third story window, the consequence will probably be a broken leg or or something worse. Uh, In the social and economic world, uh, if you play baseball and hit a ball through a neighbor's window and break it, somebody's got to pay. Either you or your father, (laughs) or maybe even the neighbor if he's generous enough. And then there are spiritual laws. There are laws by which we're related to God as judge. And there are consequences for the wrongs we commit against God. The consequence of our wrongs, the Bible says, is death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And in the Bible, that doesn't just mean physical death. It means separation from God's loving fellowship. So God as judge of the universe must, in according with his justice, enact the consequence of according to our behavior. And if we sin against him, if we reject him, if we go uh, astray from him, we reap the consequence, the just consequence of that. But you see, God, according to his love, wants to forgive us and wants to restore us to his loving fellowship. Now, how is God going to satisfy his justice and his love and achieve his goal of restoring us his loving fellowship? The answer, I think, is God decided to pay. <laughs> he himself decided to pay the consequence of our sin. But God saw that only a human could pay the consequence for human sin. So in the person of a son, he became a human being. The mystery of The the truth of John 3.16, God showed His love so much. He became one of us. Then He fulfilled God's law. He fulfilled God's moral standard perfectly so there wouldn't be any sin of His own. And then He went and took our sin upon Himself. Our sin and its consequences. He embraced it. He took it upon Himself in His death on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 he Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. But then you might say, doesn't it say in the Bible that He took on the sins of the whole world? How can any one human being take on the sins of the whole world? Well, if it was just a mere human being, why well, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? But you see, Jesus is fully human in his human nature and fully divine in his divine nature. So as a whole person, his life is infinitely more than all the lives of the world. And so his atonement is greater than all our sin. As 1 uh, John 2.2 2 says, He is the the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And because his atonement is greater than all our sin, death could not keep him. So he arose from the grave to secure eternal life for all of us if we put our trust in him. And that's why, I think, he became man. There are other things he accomplished when he became man, but I think that was the important one. And so for those of us who profess to be Christians and who bear the reproach of non-Christians in believing this stupendous, seemingly impossible miracle of the Incarnation, we offer to them a God who has come more personally, more intimately to us, and has shown self-sacrificing love more fully, than any other god of any other religion in the whole world. And so I have some questions to ask to non-Christians who consider themselves spiritual. You know, everybody today doesn't want to be religious. I mean, a lot of people don't want to be religious today, but they do want to be spiritual. My questions are this. What kind of god do you believe in, if you believe in any god? Do you believe in a God of love and righteousness? And if so, how has that God shown? How has that God shown his love and righteousness? Now, the Christian has her or his answer. What is your answer? I'm going to close with a prayer. And this is a prayer that everybody here can pray if they want to. Most of you probably have heard a sermon like this, uh, a gospel message, dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times. And each time you said, yes, that's what I believe. <clears throat> but some of you here may, may have heard the gospel some time ago, and since then you've had doubts, you've had questions, you've, you've had struggles, and, and your faith is just not what it used to be. And Christ seems to be... Far away, not close as it used to be and and maybe you would like to give Christ a fresh start today. and you can pray this prayer too. Or maybe you hear you're here and you you have heard the gospel message, but it never made much sense to you. And you never committed your life to Christ. Perhaps it's beginning to make a little sense, maybe. And if so, I invite you to pray this prayer too. So whether it's a prayer of renewal for all of us who are believers or whether it's a prayer for the first time, I invite you to pray this along with me step by step and say it silently each part after me. Uh, Not out loud, unless you want to, but say it silently as I pray. Let us pray. Dear Christ Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God who became man for my salvation. I believe you love me so much that you died for my sins. Thank you for your self-sacrificing love. I confess you as my Savior and my Lord. Amen. Now, if there's anyone here...